Hello, I'm Razia Iqbal. Welcome to NewsHour from the BBC World Service. It comes to you live from London. The head of the World Bank tells this programme the bank will stop funding projects that prospect and extract oil and gas. That interview is coming up in just a moment and is our top story today as world leaders gather in Paris for a climate change summit. Also on the programme, people in the US state of Alabama go to the polls to elect a senator in a race that has been mired in controversy. Will the allegations of sexual misconduct against the Republican Roy Moore change voters' minds? There are lots of allegations swirling about lots of different people right now, and I probably would have spoken up a long time ago instead of saving it till a time like this. Well, you know, there just seems to be, why did they wait to the very end? It kind of makes you wonder, are they really true or... Or somebody paying him a whole lot of money to say that. Stay with us for that report and we'll be speaking to our correspondent in Alabama in half an hour. We begin, though, with the fight against global warming. Two years ago today, on the 12th of December, a deal which had been years in the making was struck. The Paris Agreement involved nearly 200 countries pledging to work to cut greenhouse gas emissions. And to mark the second anniversary of this historic climate change deal, more than 50 world leaders have gathered with bankers and businessmen to focus on the financing of the commitments made. Of course, one leader who isn't there is President Trump. Trump, whose decision to pull out of the Paris Accord sparked worldwide condemnation and led the French president, Emmanuel Macron, to launch his Make Our Planet Great Again initiative. Mr Macron was speaking to the American TV network CBS on the eve of the summit. We have to react and do something because it's impossible to leave the floor to a, a sort of dismantling of the Paris Agreement. Second, a deep wake-up call for the private sectors and some others to say, wow, So we have to react. Otherwise, basically, it will become a little bit shaky. But at the same time, to be totally direct with you, today we have honestly a big issue in general, but it's not directly due to the U.S. decision. We are not delivering in line with the Paris Agreement. And and the increase of the average temperature is plus 3.5 degrees instead of plus 1.5 degrees, which was the initial commitment. So we have, on top of it and beyond the U.S. decision, we have to accelerate, we have to commit ourselves, we have to make big change, our way to produce, our way to organize ourselves, our way to invest. And, and I just want to pass this strong call. Just think one sec, that if we decide not to decide, if we decide not to move and not to change our way to produce, to invest, to behave, De facto, we decide, you decide, to condemn billions of people in the coming decades. All of us will be judged for that. We do know that if we don't change, if we don't react, we will be responsible for billions of victims. I don't want to be a leader in such a situation. So let's act right now. Let's invest on green technologies. Let's change our business model. Let's behave differently. Let's move differently. Let's take other cars. Let's change our mindset, our way to proceed precisely, because that's our responsibility. President Macron. Well, in just a moment, we'll hear from the president of the World Bank on a new policy regarding climate change. But let's get a sense of the issues on the table at this summit from our environment analyst, Roger Harabin. 
Well, environmentalists were rather sceptical about this, I must admit. You know, there was a bit of a wondering about, is this uh, President Macron grandstanding? You know, there was the Paris Climate Accord. Now he's, I've invited these leaders and we're going to sort everything out. But I have to say they're already starting to change their tune. We've seen the French insurance giant AXA saying it won't insure oil pipelines anymore. That's quite a big deal. It says it's pulling out of coal. Uh, also, that is a big deal. It controls okay. billions and billions of dollars worth of assets. We've seen other major corporations pulling out of, of, of coal assets. We've seen 1,200 firms declaring to this meeting that they will stick to the Paris Climate Change Agreement. There's an awful lot going on. That was our environment analyst, uh, Roger Harabin. Let's hear now from Dr Jim Yong Kim, who is the president of the World Bank Group, one of the conveners of this week's summit in Paris. First on that announcement on prospecting and extracting oil and gas. Today we're announcing we are going to stop all upstream oil and gas operations. We've changed our position tremendously. We used to be a very large financer of fossil fuel projects. We've gotten out of coal completely. We believe that natural gas is still going to be a transition fuel for low- and middle-income countries. But we're getting out of upstream, and we think that uh, the renewable industry is changing so quickly, we may be able to get out of oil and gas altogether soon. And the only time we might do any kind of upstream gas is only in the poorest countries in the most desperate situations. So which countries is this going to make an impact on? It's going to make an impact on all the middle-income countries and basically the vast majority of the low-income countries as well. And uh, any upstream work will be considered on a case-by-case basis. So we're essentially getting out of upstream oil and gas. What's led to this decision now? The price of solar has gone down so much. The cost and size of batteries has gone down so much. We think that energy needs can be provided by other means. And the science of this is just changing so quickly. We want to get out ahead, and uh, we don't think that we need to be in the uh, upstream oil and gas business anymore. Let's talk about uh, climate change generally then. Two years on, how would you assess where the world is at with the Paris Accord? The Paris Accord was extremely important, but what happened was that afterwards we didn't move quickly enough to put the deals in place. You know, climate change is so complicated, there's not a single actor that can do it. It's a complex process that requires a lot of different players, and we didn't have particular settings where all those players were coming together to have the discussion. This is a major advance in that everybody is here. The financial community is here. Private sector companies are here. The United Nations is here. We have you know, more than 50 heads of state or government here. We also have mayors and governors from all over the world that I think are the coalition that's going to be required to really tackle climate change. How much of an impact has President Trump's decision to withdraw from the accord made on the kinds of discussions that you think you're going to be having? The most remarkable thing for me is that there are so many American leaders in the climate change fight here. We have former Mayor Michael Bloomberg, we have Bill Gates, Arnold Schwarzenegger is here, other leaders from cities and states are here, and so the presence of the United States is going to be felt very strongly. Do you think then that it doesn't matter that President Trump has said that the U.S. will pull out? Let me put it this way. One of the things that you realize when you work in a multilateral institution is that in the vast majority of the developing countries of the world, there is no doubt among the people, among the leaders, 
that climate change is real. I can't tell you how many African leaders have told me that the boot of climate change is on their necks. So coming here and gathering together leaders from all over the world, there's a sense here that not only is it real, but it's accelerating and that we have to accelerate our action accordingly. The bank's primary aim is to end extreme poverty. And it's your belief that that can only be achieved if climate change is addressed. That's right, is it? Absolutely. The reality of climate change is right in the face of developing countries. So one of our team members just came back from Vietnam, and my goodness, it's at the top of the agenda for the entire country. The waters are rising, they're losing land. This is very real. When there is a storm in coastal areas in Africa, all of the infrastructure can be wiped out because there is not the kind of construction that can withstand those kinds of storms. We predict that if we don't keep global warming below 2 degrees Celsius, there will be 100 million more people plunged into poverty. But right now, today, no matter where you go, you can see the effects. The reality of impoverishment from severe weather events, the reality of impoverishment from rising waters is in front of our clients every single day. And people will tell you that this is happening to us because of climate change. Do you agree then that the elimination of extreme poverty should also be seen as a pressing human rights issue? We believe that the end of extreme poverty is something that is critical for the well-being of the entire planet. High levels of inequality lead to instability, and the instability has an impact on every corner of the world. I mean, this is one of the things that we've learned here in Europe with the refugee crisis. I think that, that, that uh, poverty is an issue that affects everyone, and uh, we've just um, uh, declared in our uh, new safeguards that, in fact, uh, human rights is, uh, is, a, is a critical consideration in all the work that we do. And, of course, uh, uh, poverty is directly linked to that. That's interesting. Is that something that's just happened? Because I wonder if you would respond to the special rapporteur on extreme poverty and human rights, Philip Alston, who said a couple of years ago, for most purposes, the World Bank is a human rights-free zone. No, well, we, we of course, uh, completely disagree with that. The World Bank is an organization that, by its articles of agreement, can't get involved in political affairs. But after debate, we have now declared that a commitment to human rights is important, and it's in now our safeguards. We feel that we have done more to ensure social and economic rights than any other organization that exists. When you talk about the political prohibition that prevents the World Bank from engaging in human rights head on... In politics. In in, in politics. Okay, okay, but is it not the case that pretty much everything that you engage in is political? The full range of environmental issues are deeply political. You engage in governance, which is political, anti-corruption campaigns. All of these things are political. There's a very fine line between getting involved in very specific issues that are determinative of whether or not people have a job, people have access to health, people have access to education, and then getting involved in the domestic political affairs of a particular country. We manage that fine line every single day that we work. But for us, human rights is very real. Human rights is in the form of having access to health, access to education, access to social protection, access to a job. That's how we live out our commitment to human rights. We do not comment on domestic political affairs, and that's our own interpretation of the Articles of Agreement. In the context of this summit, what will success look like? 
Success will look like very concrete deals. We are putting 12 specific deals on the table ourselves, and lots of other organizations have brought specific deals to present to financiers. So you're going to see very concrete commitments about going forward, and it's only that that can create the kind of momentum we need. We don't see any other force other than market forces. Financiers seeing that they can both do good and make a good return by investing in climate change-related projects. That's the dynamic that we need to really reach the two degrees Celsius target. That was the president of the World Bank, Dr. Jim Yong Kim, speaking to me today from Paris. A little later in the programme, we'll hear about one of the concrete outcomes of France's new leadership on the issue of climate change. An American scientist benefiting from the French government's new climate change research grants will speak to us before the end of the programme. Don't go away. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour. Coming up later in today's programme, Charles Jenkins, an American soldier who defected to North Korea in 1965, has died. We'll hear about his life there and how he got an unlikely cameo in a film. Jenkins only starred in one episode. I was told by the the director of that series that they planned for the Jenkins character to be in all 20 episodes, but he was such a poor actor, he sort of was left on the cutting room floor apart (laughs) from the final scene. It's an extraordinary story. Stay with us for that. Our headlines this hour. As you've been hearing, the World Bank has told a major climate summit that it will stop funding the prospecting and extraction of oil and gas from 2019. A former Austrian finance minister and 14 other people have gone on trial over one of the biggest corruption scandals in the country since the Second World War. This is Razia Iqbal with News Hour live from the BBC in London. A week after it began, an enormous wildfire in the US state of California just keeps on growing. The blaze in Ventura and Santa Barbara counties north of Los Angeles have has driven tens of thousands of Americans from their homes and is causing economic hardship in an area well known for tourism, citrus orchards and avocado groves. One woman died in a car crash as she tried to escape the blaze and more than 600 houses have been destroyed. Our correspondent James Cook is on the front line with the firefighters and sent this report. I'm standing now looking out over the Pacific Ocean in the hills above Santa Barbara. I can count one, two, three, four, five, six helicopters in the sky around here. They're extremely busy shuttling to and fro, dropping water on the flames which are burning just a short distance up the top of this ridge beyond us. And also here are perhaps 20 men in orange jumpsuits. They're prisoners, they're firefighter prisoners, and they are clearing brush out of the way to try to create a break to stop this huge wildfire. The fire here may become the largest in California's history. It has already consumed an area the size of New York City and Paris combined. And as it gobbled up the coastal forest, it forced tens of thousands to flee. I'm a nervous wreck. I've only lived in Santa Barbara five years, so this is the first time I've experienced a fire. So I'm, I've been in panic mode all day. Houses started burning uh, early in the evening, and they uh, accelerated during, the, during the, the, the night. 
and uh, hopefully the wind uh, will die down and it'll, we'll see it recede some, but it's been, uh, it's been pretty tough. Good friends up the street lost their homes, and I'm just so sad for them. I'm happy for myself and those of us that kept their homes, but it's awful. Well, all this creaking and rattling is the noise of a conveyor belt inside a latest greenhouse. This isn't a greenhouse like you have in your garden. This is a huge greenhouse, lettuce stretching as far as the eye can see. And here, they are affected by the fire. They're having to blow the ash off the leaves so they can package it to send it to market. The company is called Pete's Living Greens, and the owner, Pete Overgag, is determined to keep making lettuce, despite the ash in the air. We're able to go year-round and harvest every day, which also means that um, when there's a catastrophe like this fire going on, the, the plants are still growing. They don't, they don't know there's a fire out there. I mean, you're, you're doing well to keep going in these difficult times, but it must be hard. I mean, your employees obviously must be worried about their homes. Yeah, it, it's been touch and go since, since this all started last week, Tuesday. Um, you know, everyone, of course, lives in the area, and there's been a lot of, a lot of us have been evacuated. Uh, we have about 150 employees, and um, so it's been rough on everyone. And, you know, every day we're wondering uh, what, what the day will bring. This is, a, is the new normal, and this could be something that happens every year or every few years. I mean, it happens to some degree. It's just more intense, more widespread, and we're about ready to have uh, firefighting uh, at Christmas. California feels like a state under siege by the climate, with years of drought and longer and more devastating wildfire seasons. The governor, Jerry Brown, says in a warming world, these fires are no surprise. Back on the mountain, a modern-day chain gang is at work. They're not shackled, but the prisoners do wear orange jumpsuits, and they're cutting a fire break to protect the houses below. There you go. Easy. The Southern California fires have claimed the lives of dozens of horses. This was the chilling noise as hundreds of racehorses were let free to gallop for their lives. Not all of them made it. When this wildfire started seven days ago, conditions were terrifying with intense, dry, gusty winds. It's much calmer now and more than 6,000 firefighters are making progress at a price. So far, the firefight alone has cost some 40 million US dollars. James Cook reporting. We turn now to some new research on the genetic code of the Tasmanian tiger. We know the tigers were hunted to extinction by human beings, but we didn't know previously that the creatures would have struggled to survive anyway, even without humans getting involved. The University of Melbourne Associate Professor Andrew Pask, lead researcher on the study, spoke to me earlier about the creature, also known as a thylacine, which has been extinct since 1936. The thylacine was an absolutely amazing marsupial species. So it looked exactly like a dog, even though it had a pouch and had its babies in a pouch, just like a kangaroo. So it's part of the marsupial family. So it it was a pouched mammal, but really was incredibly similar to a dog. And when we did our analysis for this paper, we actually found out that it was most similar to either the red fox 
or the grey wolf were the two species that looked the most similar to. Explain to us the basis then of the new research. For the first time, we've been able to sequence the entire genome of the thylacine. So what that means is we have the complete DNA blueprint for this particular species now, and that's something that hasn't been achieved before. And how does that shift the theories of how the uh, the marsupial became extinct? What is now known that wasn't known before? Once you have that complete blueprint of information for a particular species, you can start to ask all of these questions about its biology and its life history. So it's been a big hurdle for us to get that genome. Now we have it in hand, we can ask exactly those sorts of questions. They became isolated on the island of Tasmania, which is a small state off the south coast of Australia. And when they became isolated, we thought that really led to a big genetic restriction for those animals. And what that means is that most of the animals in the population look very, very similar to one another. And when that happens, that gives them very low health. And so things like diseases can become really very problematic for those populations. And we've seen that happen for the Tasmanian devil. So that's nearly gone extinct because of a facial tumour disease that's nearly wiped out the entire population. And what our analysis showed us is that the thylacine or the Tasmanian tiger was suffering from that same lack of genetic diversity. So it would have been in very, very poor genetic health, even if it was still alive today. When you talk about limited genetic diversity and being susceptible to diseases, what was it that finally killed the Tasmanian tiger out? Yeah, that was humans, unfortunately. So once um, humans had settled, Europeans had settled in Tasmania, they were, they were farming sheep and um, the sheep were going missing. As it turns out, they now, now know that was actually other farmers stealing each other's sheep. But instead, they blamed the thylacine. It was a big marsupial predator. And that's one of the really unique and interesting features about the thylacine, is it's one of the few marsupials that we had that was actually a large predatory marsupial. And when you think about other mammals, there are lots of large predators. You know, you've got lions and panthers and tigers and bears. There's all these, you know, really big predatory species when you think about mammals in general. But when you come to marsupials, we really don't have any of those. They're mostly herbivorous and, you know, the ones that do eat meat or or eat insects or things are quite small marsupials. So the thylacine was really the only modern example that we had of a large predator And so it's been really interesting for us to start to look at the genome of this species and start to understand more about its development and really start to understand how it was that it came to look just so much like the fox or the wolf. That was uh, Andrew Pask, Associate Professor at the University of Melbourne. Uh, And I've learned a new word today. Never knew that the Tasmanian tiger was known as the thylacine. You learn it. Something new every day here on NewsHour. Coming up next, voters go to the polls in the contentious race for a Senate seat in the US state of Alabama. The campaign has been overshadowed by allegations of sexual misconduct against the Republican candidate. More on that in just a moment. But first, off the western tip of Africa lie some of the major remains of the transatlantic slave trade. The wreckage of ships that sank, carrying thousands of African men, women and children who were being transported to the Americas. Our reporter Leila Adjovi joined some of Senegal's pioneering marine archaeologists trying to uncover the wrecks on one of their expeditions. On a warm morning at sea, of the shores of Gore Island, four divers are coming back to the surface. 
slowly swimming towards the boat. They then unload their lead belts and scuba tanks before sliding off their flippers with smiles on their faces. A young woman is asking for time and pressure. Aisha Kemite is an archaeology student writing a thesis on the Atlantic slave trade. She dived yesterday, but today she's in charge of keeping the log. Three years into the slave wreck project, she speaks passionately about diving and marine archaeology. But she's come a long way. At the beginning, it was not easy. In fact, I could not even swim before this program. So the first year was very difficult for the whole team. As part of their research, this team of scientists, the first generation of marine archaeologists in Senegal, explores the seafloor in search of remains of sunken slave ships. Today, they are off Gore Island, a notorious stopover during the slave trade. Under Watsa, the divers take photos and notes about the size and position of the wreck, and they bring up some parts for analysis. Ibrahim Atiao, Senegalese archaeologist and university professor, hopes that in time the findings can shed a new light on the history of the slave trade. The crossing of the Atlantic is a very dark moment that is not very well known. We know that some slave ships were wrecked and all the archives are here under the sea. It is important to document the time of the crossing because it's the time of rupture of the umbilical cord between Africa and its diasporas. Vessels like the French Nanette or the British Racehorse are known to have wrecked off Senegalese coasts at the end of the 18th century. But according to Professor Chow, dozens of slave wrecks could be lying along the West African coastline and at the bottom of the Senegal River. At Dakar University, there is a growing interest in marine archaeology. Before the specialism existed in Senegal, Professor Chow worked on land, digging on Gore Island. He wants more African students, but also local communities, to be involved in the research process. According to him, it's the best way to decolonize knowledge and reappropriate history. That was our reporter, Leila Adjovi, uh, talking to us from the off the coast of Senegal on those pioneering marine archaeologists. You're listening to NewsHour from the BBC. I'm Razia Iqbal. To the US state of Alabama now, where people head to the polls today to choose a new senator after Jeff Sessions was made attorney general by President Trump earlier this year. Alabama is a deep Republican stronghold and the last time the Democrats won a Senate seat was more than a quarter of a century ago. And we wouldn't ordinarily cover a Senate race, but we're hardly living in ordinary times. The Republican candidate Roy Moore has been at the centre of a controversy over sexual harassment. More than half a dozen women have come forward to say he had sexually harassed them decades ago, some of them teenagers when he was in his 30s. Roy Moore has strongly denied these allegations and resisted calls from many in his own party to step aside. During his last campaign rally, Mr Moore questioned why his accusers had stayed silent for 40 years. Now they've allowed their pictures to be on a political advertisement and they've gone on national television arguing their case after waiting 40 years during which I served in three public offices in the state. I ran five state campaigns, three county campaigns in this same county 
and never once was this mentioned. Roy Moore, his Democratic Party rival Doug Jones, is a former lawyer known for prosecuting members of the Ku Klux Klan. He told supporters his party was on the right side of history. I'm going to tell you, folks, it is time, and I think we're going to see it tomorrow, that the majority of the people of Alabama say that it is time that we put our decency, our state, before political party. Doug Jones, our correspondent Gary O'Donoghue is in Alabama, a state with the nation's and the world's eyes on it, and he sent us this report. Oh, hold on. Get out! In these parts, they call it barrel racing. Small children clinging to their horses' necks as they slalom around obstacles in a dirt arena next to the cowboy church of Limestone County. This is Trump country, not a black face in sight. The president was almost 50 points ahead of Hillary Clinton at the general election here. They just don't believe the allegations of sexual assault and harassment that have been levelled against Roy Moore. There are lots of allegations swirling about lots of different people right now and um, if I was a woman I probably would have spoken up a long time ago instead of saving it till a time like this. Well, you know, there just seems to be, why did they wait to the very end? It kind of makes you wonder, are they really true or or somebody paying them a whole lot of money to say that? I was 17 when I got married. My wife was 16. That's Alabama. You know, but we shouldn't live in a world where you can't hug and touch and love and care. You know, it's being misunderstood sometimes. Had enough of career politicians? Think kitchen table issues matter? Meet Doug Jones. But the allegations against Moore, including that he molested a 14-year-old girl when he was in his 30s, have significantly narrowed the polls and given hope to the Democrats in Alabama, a place where they hold precisely no statewide offices. Doug Jones is their candidate. I believe those women in Etowah County, when there's smoke, there's fire, and there's some fire in there. And I want to make sure that when my granddaughters grow up, they don't have to endure the kind of thing that those girls in Etowah County did. I think he's going to do very well. After the allegations first appeared against Moore, he looked finished. The White House wouldn't back him. The Republican establishment withdrew its money. But then Donald Trump, no stranger to such allegations himself, overcame his reticence. I can tell you, I can tell you one thing for sure. We don't need a liberal person in there, a Democrat. The politics of the president's backing are clear. Republicans only hold a margin of four over Democrats in the Senate, 52 to 48. Any tighter and legislative progress on tax reform or health care becomes even harder. So party money flowed back in and Roy Moore defied political gravity. We're Alabama. We're Republicans. And we're not going to stand by and let other people from out of state and money from California control this election. But despite his upbeat tone, Moore could face ethics inquiries and possible expulsion from the Senate, even if he is elected. Andy Yorn, a reporter on the Montgomery Advertiser, says Alabamians won't care about that. He's about as as far-right conservative as as you get. But, you know, people also see the, the, the kind Christian judge, former DA, and think he can do no wrong, and, and obviously they're pretty stout in that belief. Hello, sir. How are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Well, we've come to the Emmanuel Baptist Church, and because this is America, and because this is 
Alabama, and because it's almost Christmas, what are they having? Well, of course, they're having a drive-through nativity, and we're just about to go to the, the first stop, which I think is the story of King David. The Bible offers us the true story about why we celebrate the Christmas season. Alabama might be the home of the Christian right, but the more allegations do pose a moral problem for some voters. And Dan Hughes, the pastor at Emmanuel Church, says some may think the moral thing to do is not to vote at all. I would think the turnout's probably going to be a little bit lower, and I think that's probably because of all the moral issues that are going on. There may be some that just choose, say, listen, I'm just going to step back and, and whatever happens, happens. wish you and your family a blessed and Merry Christmas. Pastor Dan Hughes ending that report uh, by Gary O'Donoghue. Gary joins us now live on the line from Montgomery, Alabama. Um, Gary, a really very tight race, too too close to predict. I noticed that uh, the president has endorsed him uh, once again in a tweet this morning. Yeah, it took the president quite a long time, if you remember, after the allegations first emerged to to work out what to do about this. The White House was was hedging its bets very much, uh, particularly when it looked like uh, the pressure on Roy Moore would be irresistible to pull out. But eventually the the president did come round, did endorse Moore. Uh, The difficulty for him, of course, is that he was facing, has been facing similar allegations, not just in the last few days, but during the campaign too. And I think the political reality hit home with Donald Trump because the margins in the Senate are so tight that losing a seat there would make things very, very difficult for him, legislatively speaking. So, so yeah, he's come out, obviously, in favour of Roy Moore. And I think he also sees in Roy Moore uh, perhaps a candidacy not dissimilar to, to his own. Roy Moore is not loved by the Republican establishment. Um, he's become a bit of an outsider. He's very, very sort of uh, right of centre. And and I think Donald Trump will see him as something of an insurgent in the way that uh, he saw himself. And Gary, just in 30 seconds, it's not just for that one seat in the Senate, which is so important, as you've explained, but it does seem to embody the kind of polarisation in the country. Yes, it does. I mean, the... You know the, the 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 differences between the two sides are, are clear. We know that. And uh, but the other interesting thing I think about this is that there's a, a bit of a, a sense of a referendum in this, a referendum on the this whole business of what what you do with people who have been accused with accused of sexual harassment and uh, and things earlier on in their lives. Okay. We've seen that, that people emerge. Uh, right across the different sectors, uh, making accusations, and I think some people will see Al- Al- the way Alabama votes today as some sort of indication of what the public thinks about how to deal with those sorts of allegations, those sorts of historic allegations. Gary O'Donoghue joining us live from Alabama. Let's return to our top story, the climate summit called by President Macron in Paris. For his admirers, President Macron has added to his general status as a hero. When the Trump administration pulled out of the Paris Accord and proposed slashing federal science budgets, Mr Macron took to social media and, in perfect English, offered American scientists research dollars. He urged them to see France as a second home because, he said, we all share the same responsibility to make our planet great again. I've been speaking to one of the beneficiaries of one of those French research grants, Louis A. Derry, a professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Cornell University in the US. Did he apply for this French research grant as a direct result of President Trump cutting that US federal science budget? 
Um, that was part of the motivation. I think the larger motivation was that it just looked like a way to do some really exciting science. But, uh, yeah, the, the sort of uncertainty and kind of chaotic situation we have with the budget right now in the U.S., uh, you know, certainly contributed. Is it already making an impact? I think I believe it is largely because it's difficult to plan and we have projects for example where people's salaries are paid by these research grants that are coming to an end over the next year and people are wondering what they're going to do you know whether they should be looking for a new job um science doesn't move at a lightning speed so you need some time to uh plan ahead you all of these projects take time and so when we don't have very clear pathways forward it really is damaging even if the budget cuts are different than those that have been proposed and in terms of the attitude of the administration to climate change now. What's your view of how scientists can combat that directly beyond turning to other countries who are generously offering research grants? Yeah, well, I think we obviously still have to keep making our case. I think the resistance to the idea of climate change as a, as a real thing is largely ideologically based. There's really no empirical support for it. So I think we still have to make our our case, and and I think that the general public is becoming increasingly aware that this issue is a real issue, not a political football. Well, when you talk about it as being rooted in ideology, how do you counter it by just presenting empirical studies to an administration that doesn't value that? Uh, That is a tremendously difficult question to answer. I think you hit the nail right on the head. I think there are some people you're simply not going to convince, but I think that increasingly large segments of the public understand that this is real, and ultimately, hopefully, the political system will respond to the public perception that we have a, a real issue here that has to be addressed and not ignored. Is there also a lack of understanding, not necessarily just in the administration, but in, in society at large, that this kind of scientific research is collaborative, that it has to cross national boundaries? Well, that's a good question. I think the most interesting things out of research generally come when you get people and ideas together from different places, so you start thinking outside the box. I'm not sure that the general public is really deeply concerned with that issue, but it's a global problem with global solutions, and so I think people understand, I hope, that we need to address this collaboratively rather than individually. Have you met President uh, Macron? I did meet him last night. And and what what do you make then of how would you characterize or assess his commitment to funding climate science? It seems very serious. He talked uh, not only about funding science and expanding the funding for science, but also um, working with European partners to essentially make up the missing financial contribution from the U.S. stepping back from the uh, Paris Climate Accord. So that's a pretty big commitment. So if he's up there saying that publicly, I assume he means it. Isn't there a potential fallout from this that if President Trump sees that other countries are willing to fund uh, research, then he'll just say, well, fine, go ahead. I won't change my funding of the federal science budget. In fact, it's absolutely fine. If you you guys guys can get money from elsewhere, go ahead. Um, that may be the case. I don't think Trump is really at issue here because I doubt he's going to change his mind one way or the other. I think that the congressional appropriations process will be where the rubber meets the road. That was uh, Louis A. Derry, a professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Cornell University, speaking to NewsHour from Paris just a few hours ago. You're listening to the BBC World Service. This is NewsHour 
A reminder of our top story this hour. The World Bank has told a major climate summit that it will stop funding the prospecting and extraction of oil and gas from 2019. Dr Jim Yong Kim, the president of the World Bank Group, told NewsHour that renewable energy alternatives are increasingly viable. We think that energy needs can be provided by other means. And the science of this is just changing so quickly. We want to get out ahead, and uh, we don't think that we need to be in the uh, upstream oil and gas business anymore. In other news, a former Austrian finance minister and 14 other people have gone on trial over one of the biggest corruption scandals in the country since the Second World War. And a French property group is buying the Australian company shopping, the shopping mall company Westfield for almost $25 billion. This is Razia Iqbal with NewsHour from the BBC World Service. In January 1965, an American soldier stationed at the demilitarised zone in Korea drank several beers and walked into North Korea. That man, Charles Jenkins, one of a handful to defect, has died in Japan at the age of 1977. During his time in North Korea, he became an actor in Nameless Heroes. It was a film series playing the evil American mastermind behind the Korean War, Dr. Kelton. Ah, you? Ah, you recognize me. I heard a lot about you. Dr. Kelton, as a friend of Just a little extract from the film series that uh, Charles Jenkins was in. In 2004, he was released and went to Japan, where he was court-martialed and sentenced to 30 days in prison. Just before he left North Korea, he met a documentary film crew there, his first encounter with Westerners since his defection almost 40 years earlier. The authorities didn't want him to be interviewed, but he spoke briefly about his life there. I'm happy where I am, retired. (laughs) In North Korea, they didn't cut my money. And they give me more rations. (laughs) Charles Jenkins there saying, I'm happy the way I am, retired. In North Korea, they didn't even cut my money and they gave me more rations. The documentary was called Crossing the Line and was directed by Daniel Gordon. So why did Charles Jenkins defect? He claimed in his court-martial that he did it because he knew that his company was going to Vietnam and therefore he didn't really want to, to serve there. The, the, the casualties were really beginning to fly around that time. I got the impression that he had money problems. There was certainly talk of that in the newspapers at the time, maybe uh, female-related issues as well. And I think like the three that had gone before him in the previous three years, he just one day decided enough was enough. And he, he, was, he was stationed in the, the demilitarised zone in South Korea and what did he do that January night? January in Korea is uh, an incredibly cold time. He walked across the demilitarized zone and it's the most heavily fortified area on earth so he walked across this heavily fortified zone and gave himself up to the North Koreans and he was a sergeant at the time. He was the highest ranked of the four American soldiers that defected in the 60s. He was 24 years old. What happened to him then when he was in North Korea? Like now, back then, they, they sort of they take the time, they sort of debrief him, they make sure he's not a plant or a spy. But eventually they did a very big sort of propaganda push about how this American soldier had, uh, in the North Korean's eyes, come to his senses and come across the promised land. But I think the, the reality for Jenkins, once he got over that 
sort of exhilaration of of the defection. I think he he realised that he maybe had made a, a bit of a, a mistake on a personal level, and he he didn't really want to be there. But what did he do? I mean, you say they used him for propaganda purposes, but he also became a, a bit of a celebrity. Yeah, he did, and that would take some time. I think for the first ten years, I don't really think the North Koreans knew what to do with these with these Americans. There were four of them. They put them together at one point uh, and separated them shortly afterwards. They would teach English. They would look at English translations of Korean speeches by the great leader, as they call him, Kim Il Sung, and these were fairly ill-educated Americans as well. Mm. So it, it, they were kind of like the the wrong the wrong people in the wrong jobs. They try to naturalise them and, and make them as North Korean as possible and, and, and go through all the propaganda with them and the teachings of the leader and all that kind of stuff. And then eventually they starred in, in the late yeah. 70s, they starred in this 20-part series called Nameless Heroes, which became a massive cinema hit and a television hit in North Korea. And they starred as bad Americans. Jenkins only starred in one episode. I was told by the the director of that series that they planned for the Jenkins mm-hmm. character to be in all twenty episodes, but he was such a poor actor they he sort of was left on the cutting room floor apart <laughs> from the final scene. But before his involvement in those films, that he was subjected to some considerable brutality, wasn't he? He was, and he, he alleged that when he redefected back to America, he, he did that in Japan in, in 2004 when he went back, and, and he claimed that Dresnok, one of the other Americans, was sort of used as the beating force. And when you meet Dresnok, he was a, a very, very big unit, and Jenkins, by comparison, was quite small and, and a little bit more, I guess, Weasley-like um, in his mannerisms, and you could see very quickly how that kind of personality clash would then lead to violence and and they did a lot of drinking as well in in North Korea and that that never helps it was strange you'd think that they had so much in common all being American all being soldiers most of them from the south and then suddenly thrust into North Korea together they would become a little bit of a band of brothers but they were actually very very individual and, and didn't get on at all so what Jenkins alleged was that Dresnok was used you know just used to beat him up basically until he did what the North Koreans said. He did have some personal happiness didn't he he got married in North Korea. He did and it's it's one of the strangest tales really that he met a, a Japanese lady who it later transpired had been kidnapped from Japan with her mother who's who's never been seen or heard of since and this Japanese lady was kidnapped taken to North Korea to teach Japanese language and customs to North Koreans stroke North Korean spies and they met and and sort of formed this bond had two children and until the Japanese prime minister came over in 2002 and and the North Koreans sort of admitted that this is what they'd done and and there were five of the of the kidnapped 13 that were alive and they went back to to Japan, no one actually knew that these people existed. It was a, a very strange existence that they had, and in fact, I don't think that the Jenkins—they had two two girls, two daughters together—and I don't think they knew of how their parents had come to be together. Do you think he looked back on what he had done at the age of twenty-four as a kind of really foolish blunder, or did he see that his life had some high points in it? I think he had a mix of those emotions and bear in mind I when I interviewed him it was in North Korea so he, he would have been very careful exactly what he said to me but I, I imagine that he 
he regretted doing what he did. I don't know what sort of a life he would have led in America, even if he'd have been posted to Vietnam and even if he'd have survived the war. I'm not sure what sort of a life he would have had. But I think whatever happened, he always looked back on the fact that he'd met a woman and he'd had a family and, and that alone was a positive that he would never undo. But I, I don't think he, he looked back on his, his years in North Korea particularly fondly. Astonishing story uh, told there by Daniel Gordon, director of uh, a documentary called Crossing the Line, about uh, the American soldiers who defected to North Korea. And uh, we're doing that story today because Charles Jenkins, a former US sergeant, age 24, defected to North Korea and became Pyongyang's prisoner for nearly 40 years. He has died at the age of 77 in Japan. That's it for this edition of NewsHour. Thanks for your company this past hour. From me, Razia Iqbal, and the entire NewsHour team here in London. Till the next time, bye-bye. NewsHour has been a download from the BBC. To discover more and our terms of use, visit bbc.com slash podcasts.